to Coffee, Cake and Culture, the podcast. Hi, Rob. How are you? Andy, I'm well excited for our fourth episode. Who'd have thought that we'd get this far? This far so quickly. Exactly. Today, Rob, we're going to look at something that is going to be quite difficult to do on a podcast, and that is musical notation. Now, Rob, have you ever thought about how music is written? Andy... I mean, I, I mean, I know those. I, I, I once in the '80s with my mullet had a earring that was a treble clef. So I've got, <laughs> I've got, I've got an awareness of it. But no, it's it's not something that I think about. Have you thought about when notation started? I mean, when we think about writing, the written word, mm. the written word's been around almost forever, you know, mm. we, with generations and thousands and thousands and thousands of years, there's been some sort of writing. Do you think that music's the same? That there's been a, a type of musical notation for as long as there has been writing? The cavemen were, you know, chiseling on the on the rocks which way a, a, a grunted song goes. I don't know. I imagine it's been around for a while, but maybe it's like, you know, Shakespearean English sort of became modern day English, etc. And, you know, ancient languages like Hebrew, Aramaic uh, have, you know, become modernised or Greek or something like that. So I imagine there's an equivalent in music. Ah, oh, you see, that's what most people think. Mm. But I think that this journey is going to take you on something that's going to show that you're wrong. <laughs> yeah, not, it will not be the first cake. But Andy, before we start talking... We need to talk about the cake. Absolutely. Yes, I, the, yes. the, I, my my um, slightly oversized nose can smell something in the background <laughs> that, that I'm looking forward to. you For those uh, li- listeners out there, Andy does your classic... Uh, carrot stick kind of motivation with me she has something cooking in the background and if we get to the end of the podcast she provides me with a small taste of the cake usually the leftovers so that's right the leftover <laughs> bits of it and yes you can have some of these when we're finished so today rob i decided that we were going to do a biscuit Ooh, nice. so rather than a cake and it's an italian biscuit and the reason i decided to do an italian biscuit is because we're going to be talking a lot about a guy called guido mm, i think he mentioned guido. guido guido before yep and he is italian so i thought a good idea now these and i apologize for any italian as i destroy the name of this biscuit it's called a ricciarelli and it is a um a, a biscuit from siena it's almond meal and egg white and sugar, pretty mm. much all. It's got a little bit of flavoring in it as well. And you make the biscuit and then you leave it on the board for about an hour or two so that the outside gets all hard and the inside still stays, stays soft. And then you bake it. And when it comes out, you've got this hard, crunchy exterior and this soft, mushy interior. And it is just Absolutely beautiful. So I thought that an, an Italian biscuit would be a good idea for a talk that's going to talk a lot about Italy. I think I'm going to go the old uh, Tim Tam approach with the coffee at the end of the oh, podcast. Yes. A bit of dipping into, I think, to, you break the outer shell and the oozingness comes in. Stop myself and hopefully the listeners from salivating. To, <laughs> let, let's, let, let's get started let's on notation. Start. Let's start. We're starting with a quote. The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as a gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. Tis twice blessed, 
It blesseth him that gives and him that takes. Tis mightiest in the mightiest. It becomes a throned monarch better than his crown. Now, Rob, I'm sure you know that's a bit of Shakespeare. Oh, I mean, if you, if you can't throw Shakespeare at me and get it, I would have got that, Andy. You didn't, you, you, <laughs> Sorry, yeah, I should have yeah, said, what do you think it is? <laughs> that is a little bit from The Merchant of Venice, which you may or may not have known. It is actually from Act 4, Scene 1 of The Merchant of Venice. And how did I learn those six or seven lines from memory? Well, I took out my tome of the complete works of William Shakespeare, which I got as a prize in year six at speech day. Mm -hmm. And I read those six lines over and over and over and over and over until I knew them from memory. Mm. But what if I didn't have that book? What if instead I had a teacher sitting next to me reciting those six lines until I knew them from memory? And he or she, and just for ease, I'm just going to say he, because in these times it would have been a he, just say he didn't have the book either. But he was, he knew it from memory and he was teaching me from memory. So we're doing it from rote. And let's expand that concept a little bit and say that it's just not those six lines of The Merchant of Venice, but it's the whole of The Merchant of Venice that he's teaching me from memory that he knows from memory. And now let's expand that just a little bit further and say that it's not just The Merchant of Venice, but it's all of the works of William Shakespeare. 37 plays, six poems, and 154 sonnets, all taught to me by a teacher who knows all of that from memory and is teaching it from memory to me from memory. Now, that, I think, is something that you would think would be pretty impossible. It is. It reminds me of, you know, those superhuman photographic memory kind of people. But for the average punter, like most of us, it's not really achievable. Exactly. Exactly. But in early Christendom, monks had to learn 80 hours of plain song chant or Gregorian chant from memory because there was no such thing as musical notation. So, Rob, when I was asking you to start with, was there any such thing as musical notation? The answer is absolutely not. That the concept of musical notation is actually something very, very new. And so when Christendom started, those early monks, as I said, 80 hours of plain song chant. Now, somebody has worked out that that is equivalent to all of Beethoven and all of Wagner stuck together. Jeez, it's quite a quite a uh, a feat. Task. Yes, yeah. exactly. Now let's leave those monks in early Christendom for a second, and let's go biblical. Let's go right back to the time of David. Mm. Okay, we know from the biblical stories that David wrote the Psalms. Mm. We know that he was a musician. We know that he played a stringed instrument, whether it was a lyre or a loose or a harp. He played something. Mm. We know he wrote those words of the Psalms. We know that there was a music attached to the Psalms. Sing me the music. Uh, don't, I don't. Everyone I wants to hear that. <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, there, you do have this, you know, those sort of images of him 
in my mind, it was sort of a liar, harpy kind that's of right, thing. That's right. That's right. So we know he did it. And I have to tell you, Rob, I will never ask you to sing anything. And the thing is that we can't sing it because there was no musical notation to pass these melodies down. So although we have the words and we have the knowledge that he was a musician because we have it written, we have no knowledge of the music that was actually sung. It's really interesting because, you know, in a previous podcast, we've known, we've spoken about how melody and harmony add this extra layer to what's being presented with or without words. Mm. So I feel like we're missing stuff. Exactly. We are missing stuff. We are missing stuff because there is no notation to give us the knowledge of exactness until very late in the piece. So we're going to leave those biblical stories. And we're going to move into the, the world of the ancient Greeks. Okay, so ancient Greece was roughly 700 to 480 BC, you know, roughly around that period. Music for the Greeks was seen as being incredibly important. It was seen as being divine and having magical powers. We will talk in another podcast about how important music was for the Greeks in the sense that it was the Greeks who actually formulated music. We think that music before the Greeks was pretty chaotic, but they were the guys who actually discovered the concept of scale and actually put music into a pattern, a scalic pattern. So music was really, really important for them. And music was part of every part of their existence, every festival, every bit of their lives had music. And in fact, if you called a man a musical man, you were bestowing on him the biggest compliment you could have been giving him. You were saying that he was someone educated and distinguished and someone who really knew how to be a good person. And contrary, if you said that they were unmusical, you were basically saying them brutish and uneducated and inferior. So music was really, really important. But from this enormous period where you would think that as music was so important that there'd be heaps of music, we only have 12 little bits of musical notation. That's it. Mm. And we only have one complete piece of music. And that complete piece of music is the oldest piece of music that we have, complete piece of music that we have. And it's actually an epitaph on a gravestone. Mm. And it's the gravestone of somebody called Siculos. And it's on it written, it says um, in Greek, I am a tombstone, an icon. Siculos placed me here as an everlasting sign of deathless remembrance. On top of the Greek, there are some little letters and some sort of dots and dashes. And this is where a podcast becomes difficult because I can't show it to you. But just imagine you've got Greek letters and some little letters on top. Now, somebody very, very, very clever, much cleverer than me, has managed to decipher what those little letters are and have come up with the tune of this epitaph. And I'm going to play it for you now. Let's have a listen.
was quite quite interesting as an epitaph. Obviously, I don't understand the words, but you know, I could I could hear the melody. I'm interested in how that came about. Well, I actually have no idea because mm. we don't have any notation to know how it came about. So this is the only full piece of music that we have from the whole of the period of the ancient Greeks. And as I said, this is the oldest full piece of music. So I can't tell you that before the ancient Greeks, we had other pieces of music. This is it. So when you ask, how did that come about? Honestly, there's nothing I can tell you about it because there's nothing there. And what this does tell us though, is that for a short period of time, in the period of ancient Greece, there was a form of notation, but that died out. And it could very well be that the reason it died out was that the only people who knew that notation were professional musicians and maybe choir teachers or choir leaders. So my little crazy form of, of um, thought is that you've got a big choir I'm the choir leader. I know how to read the notation. I teach my choir um, and I teach my second, second in charge. But if I die and my second in charge dies, I haven't taught my third in charge. And so notation dies out because nobody has actually followed that on. So instead of it being taught to the community, so the community knows the notation, if you keep it as a hierarchical thing, it dies out. And that potentially could be what happened to notation with the Greeks. So as I said, one piece of music and 12 little bits is all we have from that whole period, although music was so important to the Greeks. Now let's move forward in time a bit to the Romans now. So in Rome, Roman, Roman period was roughly 27 BC to about 395 AD. So that crossover period and although music was still very important to the Romans it wasn't nearly as important as it had been to the Greeks and we think that most of the music that the Romans had was music from the Greeks so it what they didn't des design or um, organize their own music it was something that they borrowed from the Greeks. We know very little about the music of the Romans because there was no notation and just like the Greeks we can see in their paintings and their murals and their um, mosaics that there were instruments and that instruments were played, but we don't know what that was. Now, let's move back now to the monks, beginning of Christendom. And we know that when Christendom started, that the monks needed some music and they took their music from two places. They took their music from the ancient Greeks and we'll talk about that again. And we also know that the first Christians were converted Jews. So it makes sense that that first music was the same music as the music of the Jewish liturgy. And we know that initially that the singers of the Jewish synagogues would sing on Saturday for the Jewish population and then on Sunday for these new Christians. And so we know that there was obviously very similar music for both. But again, because there was no notation, we don't know what it is. And 
over time, they, the monks, managed to create a music that we now call plain song chant. And if we think of what plain song chant is, plain song chant is slow moving, it's unison. We've talked about this before, that if you have other parts, they're all singing higher or lower, but singing the same part. Because there was no notation, the music had to be very simple. It had to follow the line of the word and it had to follow the the line of the breath. It couldn't have big leaps because how are you going to remember the distance of a leap? And if we remember that it's 80 hours of chant, obviously all that chant isn't sung every day. We only have 24 hours in a day. Some of that chant is sung daily. Some of it's sung weekly, some monthly, some once a year. So it had to be simple enough for the memory to tell you what it is. Those monks, 80 hours, they're quite a memory, but it, it d- does sound like quite a, uh, a vibe hanging out with your mates, doing a bit of a chant together. <laughs> but it, there, there is something hypnotic about it. There is something, the concept of chant, you can hear the repetition. I think, you know, you can see why it brings them closer to God, as we said in earlier episodes. Absolutely, absolutely. It does have this sort of... Um, meditative sound to it doesn't it it really using a sort of a 21st century concept um really you can see how you would meditate to this sort of music but now let's get back to the fact that there's no notation so they're learning 80 hours of chant from memory do you remember as a kid playing telephones where you say a little sentence and you say that sentence to somebody else and somebody else and somebody else and it comes back all totally wrong. Well, it has to have been that way then because you are getting young kids coming into the monasteries, they're uneducated, they're not musical, they're just fodder basically. And they're going into the into the monasteries and they're having to learn all this stuff from memory. And you can imagine that what monk A remembered and then taught to monk B has to be different. It can't be the same. And what he then taught to monk C would have to be very different from what was taught to monk A. This is one of my favorite bits in all of my talks about music. And it's a bit with the the wonderful Howard Goodall. 
what he does is he goes to a bunch of boys who have been singing in a cathedral you know since the day they were born these are boys that understand the concept of of chant they've sung chant every sunday they are very musical they've got gorgeous voices he sings a chant like melody to one chorister who then sings it to another and another and another and another now these are highly skilled little boys and listen to the disaster that they create. I'm going to sing a little tune to Richard, the head chorister here, and he's going to sing it to another chorister, and then another chorister after that, and so on down the line. When it comes back at the end, will it be the same tune, or will it be a case of Gregorian whispers? Okay, Richard. It's already quite different after just two hearings. It's a different length, different pitch and a different speed. If trained choristers like these find it difficult, imagine what it was like in Gregorian times with only illiterate peasant children as raw material. third boy he obviously got the sack from the choir I mean he took the chant and he totally changed it but if we look at what the kids did the kids took a chant which only remained a chant for like the first two or three kids and then it turned into a nursery rhyme they turned it into something that was much more normal to them even though they had been singing chants all the, their lives this they turned it into something that sounded much more recognizable much more tonal and something that made more musical sense to them and so I find that really interesting that how they change it and how they're manipulated and you listen to those last two voices the the way it had turned around with the Gregorian whispers um, to the way it had started and you can see how inaccurate these chants must have been how even if every monastery had their own set of chants within the monastery they must have changed so much so that was all very well and good until we get Pope Gregory Pope Gregory's dates are 540 to 604 so a long time ago and he decided that 
he wanted everybody to sing from the same hymn book for use a terrible pun he wanted everybody to sing the same and so he had everybody all bunch of monks going to this school and they're all taught the same chants and this was also a period where um the concept of missionary became very important and to convert people to Christianity. And so he sends these monks out into Christendom to all sing the same chant. And not only to sing the same chant, but to dissuade people from singing their own chants. And he went all the way to Britain, up into the Middle East, all over trying to teach these, these Roman chants. And that's how we get the name. Gregorian chant from Gregory. As we can see, there was no notation for these monks to remember. So we can probably speculate that although these monks left Rome singing the same chant, by the time they got not so far away, the chants were pretty different. And we also know that it took about 10 years to teach the monks these chants. And if you think about life expectancy at this time, it was probably almost half their lives were learnt teaching the chants and then they die. So it wasn't it wasn't a very productive thing at this stage. And so we assume that although they were all meant to sing the chants, they probably didn't. Move ahead in time about 150 years, and we have Charlemagne. Now Charlemagne ruled from 768 to 814. And he, once again, wanted to suppress all the regional chants and have, again, everybody singing from the same hymn book. And in fact, the early chants that we know aren't Gregory's at all, but they're actually Charlemagne's. Because in that interim period, something very important had been invented. And that's something called neumes. Mm. N-E-U-M-E-S, neumes. A concept I'm not across. Tell yes. me about neumes. Okay. So think you've got the, the Latin text. On top of the Latin text are squiggles and dot, dots and dashes. And those squiggles, dots and dashes are individual. Yours are different from mine. And they give the monks an indication of where the music is going. They don't tell you where it's starts they don't say okay you're starting on an a and that means you're going a b c whatever it gives you an indication of a line and what monks were able to do was to interpret that squiggle to understand where the music is headed now as i said your squiggles are different from my squiggles and we have regional squiggles and we have within Monasteries, different squiggles. In fact, I've seen a, a book which had one set of neumes crossed out with another above it and then another above that. You know, my, again, my crazy brain, thinking that monk one had it, wrote his neumes, he died, the book was passed on to monk two, he didn't like those neumes, put his own there, he died. Monk three took it, wrote his neumes. So these neumes were a helping hand to show and to guide the monks to where they were going and not an absolute indication. So not notation, but a guide. And so we know that the, the chants that we sing 
are Charlemagne's because there was this form of notation. And so in actual fact, we shouldn't be calling them Gregorian chants. We should be calling them Charlemagne's chants, which would be Carolinian chants after Charlemagne rather than Gregory. And it's really interesting. I know that when Jewish boys do their bar mitzvahs, the sort of rites of passage ceremony, they sing in the synagogue to tunes. And my understanding is that there is in the Torah, the Jewish sort of prayer book, little notations above letters, which says, I suppose, how of their voices. That's exactly right. And that's called the trope. Okay. And the trope is, as you explained it, that above the Hebrew... There are, and below the Hebrew, there are little lines and dashes that show the melody. And um, when you are singing the Hebrew, you each of those little lines and dashes has a melody attached, and you stick all those melodies together, and that's how you get the melody that is sung for that little bit of, of liturgy. Should we have a listen to some? That sounds great. Avinu Malkeinu Avinu Malkeinu Avinu Malkeinu Chaneinu Ve'aneinu Ki Einavanu Masi So there's speculation as to when the trope actually came about. But it looks like that the trope and the neumes actually came about at roughly the same time, which is also incredibly interesting. And again, the trope is different, was different, according to the area of the the group of of. Jewish people, depending on where they were, just again, like the neums. And in fact, I've seen a neum that um, looked like Farsi, so from Persia. So we can almost assume that this was a neum taken from a monk who was living in Persia and used notation that was similar to the notation of the day as his guide for his neum. So they are very, very different. And I suggest you look up those people out there who can't see neums because you're on a podcast. Look up neums and you'll see how different all of these neums are. They're really, it's really quite amazing. So to me, where we're at is there's attempts to, you know, build a notation for music and it's happening. It's like a natural development. But there's a lack of standardization. Oh, just a tad. <laughs> just yeah. a tad. And that's a great segue because it moves on to another problem with these neumes. You remember I said before that the Greeks invented the concept of scale. Well, it's called a, it's actually not called a scale. They're called modes. And I think we've talked about modes before where you have a whole bunch of um, scales, modes, um, and each of them have a totally different characteristic. And each mode was associated to a different chant. But there's nothing in a neume that tells you what chant it is. So the, the choir master would have to try and work out what chant needed what mode by looking at the neumes. 
Now I'm going to play you Twinkle Twinkle Little Star in a whole bunch of different modes. And it's going to show you how totally different the sound and the texture of Twinkle Twinkle is depending on what mode I use. So this is our traditional Twinkle Twinkle Little Star played in the Ionian mode. Now, if I'm now going to play it in what we call the Lydian mode, it's going to sound like this. And one more, probably the strangest of all of them, is the Phrygian mode. So interesting, the changes. It is, isn't it? They, I mean, that last one, it almost doesn't sound like Twinkle Twinkle at all. It sounds like something totally different. So you can imagine that we have these choir masters. They've got the text in front of them. They've got the squiggles of the neumes. And then they have to try and work out which mode to sing each of these plants on chants. And the characteristic of the chant completely changes depending on what mode it is. So... It's all a bit of a mess. And what we need is some way, as you said, of uniformity. Now, I got to this point in my um, research, Rob, and I suddenly thought, okay, we're talking, about, we're talking about Christians. We're talking a little bit about the Jewish world. What's the rest of the world doing? How did the Chinese and the Indians develop notation and and the West is just far behind or is the West out in front and the, it hasn't even been discussed in the rest of the world? What's going on in the rest of the world? Well, interestingly, both the Chinese and the Indians at roughly this period have invented something called tablature. Tablature is a little sign which tells you what chords to play. It doesn't tell you the melody. It doesn't tell you the rhythm. It doesn't tell you any information except for where to put your fingers on a fret and how to play it. And so that's almost as basic as what we had in the West. There are other interesting forms of notation. In one place, they had notation where they moved the words up and down according to where the music was placed. So if the the melody was going up, the words would go up higher and then down lower. Once again, you can't actually see how long a certain note is going to be held or, or the length of anything, but you can see the overall um, curvature of the music. A little bit like, you know, when you see primary school teachers singing, um, teaching a choir in primary school and they move their hands up and down to show the, the kids where to go. It sort of looks like that in their writing, which I think is quite clever but not notation. So we can see that the whole world is pretty much looking for the same thing, the concept of notation. So we are now moving to one of the most important people in musical history. Someone again, who you've only heard about because I keep on banging on about him, and that's Guido. Guido of Arezzo, he was a choir teacher um, in Arezzo, which is now part of Tuscany. His dates are 991-ish to 1050. 
And so he lived across this, the end of the first millennium into the, the beginning of the second millennium. And he was a Benedictine monk. In fact, he was thrown out of the monastery because his teaching ideas were so bizarre that they couldn't understand them. And so he was thrown out of the monastery and just became a, a choir teacher. But he did some amazing things and changed the whole course of music. The first thing he did is this. Doe, a deer, a female deer. Ray, a drop of golden sun. Me, a name I call myself. Far, a long, long way to run. <laughs> so, a needle pulling thread. La, a note to follow so. Tea. A drink with jam and bread That will bring us back to dough Oh, 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 dough! A deer, a female deer So no, Rob, Guido wasn't one, one of the Von Trapp singers, just in case you were... I, I, I don't remember going in a Hans and Guido. <laughs> but what Guido realised is that if you're trying to work out what a melody is, and there's no basis of it, it makes remembering it very difficult. But if you can give a note a name, then it takes away the mystery of the music. So if we think about doa deer, and in fact, that's exactly what it is. It's called solfege doa deer, but change the do at the beginning to ut, and you have what Guido invented, ut, re, mi, fa, so, la. What you have is if you know the sound of ut and you know the sound of fa and if I ask you to sing ut to fa, it's no longer a guess. It's actually an exact. So if you know that ut sounds like this and you know that fa sounds like this and I ask you to sing ut to fa, ut fa. You're going to do it because you know what those two sounds sound like. You've taken away the, the esoteric aspect of music and you've actually given it some substance. So you can hear these intervals in your head and you know where to go. Incredible development. And as I said, the concept of solfege is something that's still taught today. In fact, in Europe, they don't talk about music in A, B, C, D, E, F, G. They talk about it in Do, Re, Mi, Fa, Sol, La, Ti. So they're still using this invention that Guido invented when he was about 35 at the turn of the first millennium. And children who learn music using solfege have an incredible, incredible ability to sight sing because they, again, it's not esoteric. It's, it's something they know and can understand. They know what these notes sound like and can then replay them so still today guido's solfege is used that's the first thing he did the second thing is he, he did was he took a bit of the liturgy it's actually a bit from saint john it's called the utquiant laxus and it's a little bit of six lines where miraculously each line starts on one note higher just like do a deer. If we play do a deer, 
so on and so on, we're going. Well, Guido did exactly the same thing with Ut Quiant Laxus, where each note begins the next line. Ut Quiant Laxus Resonare Fibris Mira chose to give us that pro forma almost just like doa dear is actually about music so if we translate those words it says that your servants may with relaxed throats sing the wonders of your deeds take away sin from their unclean lips O saint john so it's interesting that he even chooses a bit of musical text to use as the pro forma the utquiant laxus and he taught that to his choir boys so that they would know the steps of music, just like we had Maria teaching the Ron Trapp kids Doa Deer so they could understand the lines of music. So again, something that we are still using today. And then he did something else remarkable. He realized that hymn books were almost impossible. I mean, you can imagine how expensive a hymn book was and how rare they were how are you going to to teach this to your choir well there was one thing that everybody had and that's a hand and so what he did is he gave each of the crevices of the fingers a note he could then have his hand out to the choir and point to crevices and they would know what note to sing so this is again incredible and I wish I could show you this because it is remarkable. There is a wonderful guy on YouTube who sings the Utquiant Laxus by pointing to his finger. We call that the, the Guidonian hand because it's Guido, the Guidonian hand. So he's using his Guidonian hand and singing the Utquiant Laxus, both of Guido's things at the one time. Just remarkable. Look, it, it is. It reminds me, you know, you've got palm reading and you've just got the use of the body that we've all got in common. You, if, if everyone looks at their hands, you can see the different crevices. You can see the joins of each finger. And, you know, obviously we've got, you know, four fingers and a thumb on each hand. And, you know, you've got joins on every uh, digit. So That's it's quite... It, it's a, it's very uh, ingenious. It is very... It's one of those things, I call them adieu moments. They're, it's so obvious, but so ingenious at the same time. And when you look at it, you go, why has nobody thought of that before? And interestingly, there is a music um, well, composer, but also and a musicologist, an ethnomusicologist, but also a really clever guy, a Hungarian by the name of Kordai. And I apologise to all Hungarians when I, the way I say that. And he invented a, another teaching method called the Cordai system where kids are taught by using hand signs and finger signs, again, how to read music. 
And if, like Guido, you have this with you all the time, you can just do hand signals and you know what the notes are because you can hear what the notes are and they relate to a hand signal. It's so interesting, this pre-literary stage of development of humanity, because obviously this kind of methodology was used for music, but probably for trading, for Mm. all sorts of, you know, uh, the way society ran. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It it has to have, because there wasn't anything else. I mean, as as, as you say, most people were illiterate, so they had to have had some sort of way to communicate um, buying and selling and all that sort of stuff if they didn't actually, you know, couldn't give you a receipt because I couldn't write it and you couldn't read it. But there must have been some sort of way of communicating this way. But he did one more thing, which blows all the others out of the water. And again, the most awesome odeur moment, which is that he wrote or he drew a red line above the the um the text through the neumes and he said if there is a neum that sits on that red line that note is going to be a far if the neum is a little bit higher the note's going to be a little bit higher so so if it's going to be a little bit lower the note's going to be a little bit lower a me and not only did he do that he then put what we would call an F in front of that red line and said, that's the far line. Why did he decide to choose far? I'll play your far. He decided to choose far because far is the middle range for most men. Remember, women are not singing. So far is the easiest note for most men to sing. So it makes sense to put the far down as the main line. And in fact, if you know anything about written music today, the bass clef, our bass clef, wraps around the F line. So today we are still using the remnants of what Guido invented at the turn of the first millennium. And that was so clever and so ingenious that he then put another line, a yellow line, and then another line, a black line. And from then, what he's done is he's taken music from, again, the absolute esoteric, and he's given it definition. You know that if you are singing something on that red line, it has to be a far. And if it's a little bit above, it has to be a so. And if it's a little bit lower, it has to be a mean. He's taken the, the, the guesswork out of it completely, and he's given you notation. Now, this was enormously important. It was so important that Guido, this guy who's been bummed out of the church because of his crazy ideas, is now called back to Rome to show the Pope these amaz- this amazing discovery. And he writes a little bit of news. He puts his little lines there. He brings some choir boys in. He hands it to the boys. The boys have never seen it before, and they sing it. Now, if that's not witchcraft, I don't know what he is. And the fact that Guido wasn't burnt at the stake for that just shows how important this invention absolutely was. And in fact, he wrote a treatise describing this, 
where I'd like to read it to you. Is that okay? It is a bit long, but I think it's fantastic. He says, Therefore I have decided, with God's help, to write this antiphona in such a way that any intelligent or studious person may learn the chant by means of it. After he has thoroughly learned the part of it through a master, he will unhesitatingly understand the rest of it by himself without one. Should anyone doubt that I am telling the truth, let him come and learn and see that small boys can do this under our instruction. Boys who until now have been beaten for their gross ignorance of the Psalms and vulgar letters. Often they do not know how to pronounce the words and syllables of the very antiphon which they sing correctly by themselves without a master. So here we have these little boys who used to get smacked for not knowing the tune and now being smacked because their words are wrong because the the melodies are now the easy part because they're actually written down. They now have to be able to pronounce the words properly in a language that they don't know. So completely changing the whole concept of music. And by doing this, music has ease can now become more complicated, more sophisticated. We now have musical notation. But the consequences of this notation are enormous. Think about it. When you have music that has no notation, the Gregorian chants, they have to be simple. They have to be stepwise. They have to follow the breath because you have to remember 40 hours or 80 hours of playing some chant. We don't have to do that anymore. We can now write music that is more sophisticated, more exciting, more extravagant. Because if you understand how to read the notation, I can write anything I want. And by saying I can write anything I want is also very important. Because who wrote Gregory's chants? And who wrote Charlemagne's chants? I don't know. But the second you have notation, you have another group of people. The composer. Again, a bit of a melody and harmony coming into the equation. Exactly, exactly. And we have the first pieces of music with the name of the composer written on them. About a, a hundred years later, there's a two French composers, a guy called Peritant and a guy called Leonin. And both of them are some of the first composers, composers I say in inverted commas, because they're the first people where we actually have the name of the person who wrote it on the music because they take Guido's lines and then write their own music. Let's hear a little bit of Peritone.
quite a uh, piece, that one. I know. I gave you a very long listen to that piece. And the reason is, is all of that was one word. Hmm. So it was Viderunt, Viderunt. And um, you could never have had that without notation. Because how are you ever going to remember something as long as that? If you don't have it actually written down. So, and not only that, it's so all over the place. It's It's got all this uh, movement and, and different parts and it goes everywhere. That can only be, that can only happen when something's actually written down. And what happens after that is composers, because we now have that group of people called composers, they start getting bored at just one line of music. And they start to want to add another line of music. Now, this has never been done before. How are you going to know what to add? And we've talked about this before in, 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 the, in the harmony concept and, and also in the rhythm and the melody. How are you going to know how to add those voices? And it takes about 100 years or so of, of manipulating these sounds. And as we've talked about before, the church says you can only use certain intervals. But composers need to try and work out how to make these sounds sound good together. And what's interesting is that as this is changing and as music is becoming more um, sophisticated, the, the prayer is moving and, and the, the worship is moving from small abbeys to bigger cathedrals because at the same time as all this is happening architecture is also becoming more sophisticated and you have places like Notre Dame being built there's also a theory that not places like Notre Dame were built because they believed that at the end of the first millennium it would be roughly a thousand years after Jesus and that there would be a third coming and you needed to have these spectacular cathedrals for the third coming. And so these incredible cathedrals were built. And if you have just a single Gregorian chant, that's perfect for your small abbey. But if you want music that's going to fill Notre Dame, you need music that's going to have more than one layer to it. It's going to have to have what we call counterpoint, organum, or polyphony. So counterpoint is having more than one line. Organum is when you have one line and just sort of or like that drone we talked about before, and then it moves to polyphony where we have many lines of music all being sung at the same time. Andy, I love how you bring in the historical relevance and other aspects of society, because obviously music does not sit in isolation. It's an integral part of society and yes it sounds like the origin of the uh, stadium concert oh the stadium concert yes oh that's so clever i like mm-hmm. that yeah. yeah but that's yeah you're right because it's mass it's music for the masses and that's what the music in a cathedral was it was pile in all those people and sing this beautiful music to them so that they are closer to god i don't know if you'd say that's so much with an acdc concert or or something like that but definitely in the same sort of enjoyment Let's play a piece by the composer Leonin.
So t- tell me about this piece by Leonid. Okay, so what we hear in this is that you can hear those two voices. Yeah. So you hear that droney voice and then the melody and then that melody drones and then you hear the voice coming in. So this is the beginning of counterpoint, having two voices together. And this wasn't something that was totally loved by all the popes. You know, we probably think, wow, this is amazing. Let's have thick polyphonic music straight away. Well, it didn't happen like that at all. There were some popes who encouraged this experimentation with music and there were others who banned it. So we have in 1322, um, Pope Benedict XII, who banished polyphony from the liturgy. He said, no, 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 it's too complicated. It's too beautiful. It's people's minds are being listening, are listening to the the lines of the music, not the word. We need music to be as simple as possible so people aren't distracted by the beauty of the music. And then we had the next Pope, who was Pope Clementine VI, who went, yeah, let's go for it. Let's make music as beautiful as possible. So it wasn't an easy run for composers at all. But the first mass four-part mass now four-part mass means that there are four singers singing individual parts and that's sort of the basis of of all music for for hundreds and hundreds of years and that was written by a guy called Marshall and it was written for for a, a cathedral it's called the Nostradam so it's a mass for for Mary and it's the first polyphonic setting so many lines of music setting of a mass and it was first it was written in 1364 let's have a listen Gaudia. I asked you when notation came about and you as probably everybody assumes is that musical notation has been around forever why wouldn't it have been music's been around forever the written word has been around forever it makes sense that musical notation has been around forever and I think it's fascinating to think that musical notation is just over a thousand years old if we think about writing and as I said and you think about how complex music is to think that that written music is only a thousand years old is really mind-blowing in in my idea I in my eyes because there is this assumption that it's been around forever how could it not be and if it wasn't again for Guido and that red line and that yellow line and that black line and his Quian Luxus and his Guionian hand, who knows what music would have been like? I think we, we have a lot to be thankful for the role of Guido. I think we do. I think you're absolutely right. But we also have to be thankful for the biscuits that we're just about to eat. I can smell them now, Andy. <laughs> I, can, I, can see, I can see them on 
been brought into the uh, Coffee Cake and Culture studio now, so I'm looking forward to indulging. I have learned a lot in this podcast, in fact, obviously in the whole series, the development of notation, but obviously where notation fits into the role of rhythm, melody, harmony, and obviously now notation. And it's going to be taken one step further in our next podcast, which is looking at something called equal temperament, which is going to blow your brain. So make sure you have a coffee when you come in for that one. Andy, if you are enjoying Coffee Cake and Culture, the podcast, don't forget to rate and review us. You can do that. It's great on Apple Podcasts, but also on Spotify. You can give us a rating. We're loving making this. We hope you're enjoying listening to it. Can't wait to hear the next one on Equal Temperament. Very excited. Thank you. And don't forget to like me on Facebook and Instagram as well. So see you next time. Cheers. podcast has been produced by etales.com.au. That's www.etales.com.au. Does your company or organisation or even yourself need a podcast? Contact Rob at etales.com.au.